Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So today we learn from the New York Times that the FBI investigation into Russian collusion with the Trump campaign was codenamed Crossfire Hurricane. This is the first thing I've learned about the FBI counterintelligence investigation that has outraged me. (laughs) So it's such a bad codename. Okay, so with that in mind, what would better Rolling Stone lyrics have been for a codename for this investigation? Operation Agent Orange. Operation Beast of Burden. Oh, I like that. It's one of my favorites. How about Operation Ruby Tuesday? (laughs) I can't believe nobody's mentioned Operation Sympathy for the Devil. (laughs) Well, there's no sympathy. (laughs) Paint it black. (laughs) I mean, with all the world of Rolling Stones lyrics available to them, they went with that. Yeah. I mean, There's also better God, lyrics within any... that song, like, <laughs> spike right through my head. <laughs> if there were it's any... a gas, gas, gas. If there were any reason to purge the entire FBI leadership that has emerged in the last two years, the name of this coat, this operation <sighs> you, you know is... It, it, it's kind of like a dad joke, right? It's like the, <laughs> the, the, the nerdiest people trying to be cool. <laughs> Yeah, and now it's news, part of history. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Crossfire Hurricane Edition. I'm Shane Harris, reporter who nobody consulted when naming their counterintelligence investigation. I think we need like to set up a PR investigation for naming operations. Yeah. Maybe they should just make it someone's full-time job. Like, doesn't that's NSA just like have do? the best ones? Because like some like computer spits it out. But it used to be like, didn't it used to also like be like some seven-year-old woman in an office who she was like egotistical giraffe? Have you have you ever <laughs> seen have you ever seen the the awesome Twitter feed magical realism bot? Yes. So magical realism bot produces better operation names than than all of this together. And throughout this episode, I'm just going to read occasional quotes from Magical Realism Bot, maybe to inspire the FBI to better better name these things. Yeah, get with it, guys. I'm not sure you'll be able to tell it from this week's actual news. I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my good friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, everybody. Hi. The gang's all here on a rainy Wednesday. It is rainy. It's glum. <clears throat> it's, it's glum. We had quite a rainstorm on Monday. It's the rainforest version of the Jungle Studio. It's the rain. Yeah, that's exactly right. It feels especially tropical. On the podcast this week, Israel kills dozens of protesters in Gaza as the U.S. opens a new embassy in Jerusalem. President Trump wants to save jobs at ZTE, the Chinese company that officials say threatens U.S. national security, and the government has a suspect in the leak of CIA hacking tools. Uh, let's start with the, uh, I guess it was two news stories really out of Israel. One, the opening, uh, officially opening of the embassy in Jerusalem, and we've talked on the podcast before about the controversy and the debate around that move. Uh, but let's focus on these uh, um 
these protests that erupted on the border with Israel and Gaza, there have obviously been protests there for, for some time, uh, but they turned incredibly deadly this week with, I think, at last count I saw was 52 people killed. It may be... I think we may be up, to, up towards 60. Um, so that's the news, Tammy. But like, let's talk about just like, you know, how... How Israel approached this and what exactly happened here at the border? I think some people, myself included, were initially sort of shocked that what had been these protests that had been going on for some time suddenly turned so extraordinarily violent so quickly. Okay, so the first thing is that um, once the Trump administration made a decision that for symbolic reasons they were going to open their embassy on this date, which is the the Western calendar's anniversary of the founding of Israel, also the Palestinian Nakba, the, the anniversary of Palestinians' dispossession, it was inevitable that these two events were going to be linked in history. Um, Palestinians, like Israelis, have been uh, planning for this 70th anniversary for a long time. And in Gaza, what was initially uh, six weeks of protests planned by a group of independent civic movements um, has been hijacked over the weeks by uh, extremists, including by Hamas, which which rules in Gaza. Uh, and when these protests actually started six weeks ago, there was one extremely violent day. Uh, and then the protesters dialed it back and the Israelis dialed it back. But this week was the culmination, uh, the, the 70th anniversary itself. And so it was inevitable that there would be th- those with an interest in provoking confrontation, and that is indeed what happened. We have um, actually some really excellent reporting, I think, from uh, from Western newspapers, including the New York Times and the Washington Post, who had people on both sides of the border. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess what I would say here is that it was because this confrontation was, in a sense, inevitable, um, the real question is not necessarily what happened on that day or why did things go down tactically the way they did. The more important question is, why wasn't the Israeli army better prepared for this day? Why hadn't Israeli intelligence been able to do more to disrupt those who were trying to use the protests uh, for violent purposes to actually attack the fence uh, between Gaza and Israel? Why uh, wasn't the IDF able to develop more creative, non-lethal means of keeping people back from the fence? Uh, in other words, why did we end up in a situation where it was Israeli military snipers facing off against uh, Palestinians with wire cutters? So what, what do you think the answer to that is? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I- you know, in the in the broadest sense, um, there's been strategic warning about decline. You know, a deterioration of conditions in Gaza for a long time, for for many months. There's unfinished business here, um, dating back from the December 2014 war between Hamas and Israel. Uh, a lot of Gazan infrastructure remained unreconstructed. Uh, and the humanitarian situation has really gotten a lot worse. There's very little potable water. There's only a few hours of electricity a day. Um, schools and hospitals uh, that haven't been rebuilt are overwhelmed and so on. So um, there's a lot of pressure that's been building there. And the IDF has been warning the Israeli political establishment of the need to address humanitarian conditions in Gaza. But I think 
Largely for reasons of domestic politics, the Israeli defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, hasn't been interested in taking a magnanimous approach or taking a, a broader, more overarching approach toward resolving the problem of Gaza. So, Tammy, can I ask sort of, you know, one thing that I was struck by was, you know, the image of the smiling Jared and Ivanka, you know, unveiling the embassy. Um, uh, you know, I'm curious, uh, based on sort of your your State Department background, um, what would what would what should we expect a normal, highly sensitive rollout of something like this to look like? So, one thing that that I was struck by was. This is Jared and Ivanka speaking for the United States on an unbelievably sensitive issue in which the words really, really matter. And in the context of this flashpoint, this violence that is going on, it seems so incredibly sensitive. Um, am I uh, am I just, you know, anti all things Jared and Ivanka and no, you know, oftentimes we sort of put a, you know, whatever admin official face on that kind of on that kind of thing or or is this something that we would ordinarily expect a very very high level official to be to be shepherding sort of how unusual is that element of it yeah so look usually embassy openings are not that controversial uh, obviously this is an exception i i think actually the words that jared included in his remarks and he was the one who spoke at the event um, were fine in the sense that they declared administration policy uh, that, you know, Jerusalem is Israel's capital and that the administration doesn't believe that that precludes a peace deal, that it doesn't prejudge the negotiations over the status of Jerusalem but that both sides have agreed to and that the administration still hopes for peace. So he, formally, he said what you would want to say. Um, I, I think it's more about the context. If you were dealing with a controversial and sensitive issue like this uh, thoughtfully. You would want to design an event that is as inclusive as possible, both to ameliorate hurt feelings over the decision, but also to implicate as wide as possible of a political spectrum in the event itself. So that means you would have everybody across the Israeli political spectrum. You might invite, for example, Ayman Odeh, the head of the joint Arab list in the Israeli parliament. I think he was, in fact, invited, but chose not to attend. Um, but you would also invite a range of Democratic members of Congress. You would invite former ambassadors to Israel from Democratic and Republican administrations. They did none of that. They actually... The the, invi the invites, the speaking roles were as narrow politically as you can possibly imagine. In including, fact, including the anti-Semitic pastor. And Islamophobic pastor, like all rolled into one. And At least it's them. inclusive in that sense. <laughs> so it was almost designed <laughs> to alienate. Both of you. And Mormons. In other words. He really yeah. doesn't like Mormons. Pit of hell was his description. I, it was notable that the first tweet about his presence uh, at this event was from Mitt Romney. Yeah. So look, I mean, I think it's important to separate to the extent that we can the embassy opening problem from the Gaza problem. Um, they're connected, of course, but they're also different. And with the Gaza issue, I think we should start with the understanding that this is a huge win for Hamas that that Bibi Netanyahu handed them. Hamas announced that they wanted 
to get as many people killed as possible and get it blamed on Israel. And they got a lot of people killed. They got even more people injured and they got it all blamed on Israel. And so you got to put yourself in the minds of in, in, in the strategic mind of the terrorist organization and say, what were they trying to do? They told you what they were trying to do and they got it done. And now if you're an Israeli policymaker or military strategist and you're saying, how we can we deny Hamas what they're trying to get? You should be ashamed of yourself because you you gave them exactly what they publicly announced that they wanted. I think there's two elements of that. One of them, both of which Tamara just talked about, but I want to flag them separately. One is the short-term tactical question of how do you deal with large numbers of people storming a wall, a border that you have every right to defend. Um. The second – and by the way, I don't know what the answer to that is. It's a, I think it's probably a, tactically a very hard question. But if the answer is you have to kill a lot of people and so the terrorist group gets exactly what it publicly said it wanted, you're doing it wrong. I don't know what the right answer is, but I know that's the wrong answer. Well, and they've had months to think about whether they could come up with some creative solutions to right. that problem. The second question, the much harder question – I think, is how how do you address the general humanitarian conditions in Gaza in a fashion that does not empower the leadership of Hamas? And that is an extraordinarily difficult question. It's one that a lot of people who are, uh, you know, whose blood is boiling this week, rightly so, don't really care to face the difficulty of. But I think it is one that Israel needs to think very, very hard about and the United States needs to think very hard about because the alternative is the effective um, misery, the perpetuation of misery of 2 million people who aren't going anywhere and you're either you're either going to figure out a better way for them to exist politically and uh and materially uh or you're going to have a powder keg which is what this week showed and again that is an extraordinarily difficult long-term question but if you're not thinking about that question you're just asking for the next time something like this is going to happen probably with more substantial weapons than wire cutters. Yeah. So I think your point about kind of tactical success, strategic failure is exactly right. And the broader strategic failure here is the one that it's kind of blown me away, actually, that Benjamin Netanyahu in nearly 10 years as prime minister has managed to get away without offering his own citizens a solution to this dilemma, which is that the Gaza Strip, you know, right next to a bunch of Israeli villages, um, is run by a really hostile entity that uh, when it feels it's in its political interests or when its population is miserable enough to put pressure on it, shoots a whole lot of rockets at Israeli civilians. And, you know, 
Netanyahu himself has presided over repeated rounds of violence as a result of this unresolved dilemma. And somehow his own voters have not held him accountable for not coming up with a solution to this problem. A solution to this problem, of course, would involve some diplomatic engagement um, with the Palestinian Authority, if not with Hamas itself. And for Netanyahu, this seems to be just a bridge too far. So just one last question just to wrap this point up. If the United States had opened the embassy on a different day than this particular day, this Independence Day and this day that is marked as a day of <clears throat> sorrow and outrage by the Palestinians, would the events have still occurred? I mean, would they, would, they have, would they have been this disastrous on any day that the United States opened that embassy? You would not have had the culmination of six weeks of the Great March of Return in Gaza coinciding with the embassy opening, but they're almost certainly would have been some level of protest. We've seen a lot of protests erupt around Jerusalem itself, including on what seemed like very minor issues like the installation of metal detectors to access the Temple Mount, which sparked off major protests a couple years ago. So this is Jerusalem. Every inch, every every tiny decision has symbolic import in uh, this identity conflict. And so I think you would have seen something. Um, And, you know, the Trump administration could have made this decision in a context of some broader strategy toward Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, some new American engagement. And that also would have ameliorated the effects. But they chose to do it in a in a basically in a way that's entirely divorced from policy considerations. Nakba Day is a very big deal to Palestinians. And Israeli Independence Day is a very big deal to Israelis. It's a much bigger deal than Fourth of July is to the United States. And so when you choose to do something like this on a day that is enormously important culturally and in, in, in identity terms to both sides, you're playing with fire. But, you know, Netanyahu could also have said, hey, gosh, Donald, that's a great idea, but maybe not. Right. There's a lot. And and of course, Hamas could have made a decision not to throw large numbers of people up against, uh, you know, live fire that they knew was coming. You know, so everybody has a lot of opportunities not to, you know, not to behave in, in the way that gets a lot of people killed. So speaking of decisions that are divorced from the larger policy reality. Ooh, that mm-hmm. is a tough segue. <laughs> no, you I, you're getting good at this, Shane. You're <laughs> it all together. But it's nice true. Spot. You teed it up perfectly. I just want to, oh. before, b- before we continue that, I just want to point out that Magical Realism Bot says an Australian pharmacist has a rhinoceros instead of a mustache. And I think rhinoceros mustache would be an excellent name, uh, code Code name for an operation. operation. Sure, Sure. much more um, discreet, that's for sure. Um, So President Trump wants to uh, reverse, it sounds like, uh, U.S. policy towards the Chinese telecommunications company ZTE, which many, many current and former intelligence officials have warned poses a threat to the United States uh, because it could effectively be an arm of massive surveillance by the Chinese government. Um, President Trump says he wants to save jobs at CTE, says, we, I guess we've gone too far on yeah, previous policies. Make China policies. great again. Make China great again. <laughs> um, uh, Susan, I want to kick this to you because this is very much in the wheelhouse that, that you occupy. And I imagine probably many, many people at the place where you used to uh, work 
on that long commute out the VW Parkway are pulling their hair out uh, to hear that the president, uh, putting aside the sort of the the political aspects of the make China great again, why are you saving Chinese jobs? This runs just so completely counter to everything that top national security officials have said, which is that this company legitimately poses a threat insofar as its equipment being installed in the United States or in places where we have interests. Yeah, so I, there are a lot of different threads about why this is such a bad idea and sort of what's going on. You know, the, the first the, the first context to understand here is that ZTE is a very, very bad actor, and we have accused them of being very, very bad actors. We've actually taken unusual steps to offer evidence of, of uh, you know, that uh, why we believe that they are violating sanctions, not just by selling to Iran, not just by selling to North Korea, not just by selling to but essentially, they sell to every sanctioned, uh, every sanctioned nation. They've also been accused of lying to, to U.S. investigators in really serious ways. And so, what they, what Trump is um, effectively advocating for, is both a lift of a seven-year ban that the Commerce Department had imposed, and also this billion-dollar fine. So it really has sort of economically crippled um, uh, this company. You know, look, there is, um, there's a big sort of China policy and potentially corruption question, which is Trump appears to have sort of bypassed all of his his trade officials. Um, and so who got Trump's ear on this particular issue? And, and how is that direct line? And sounds and like she got Trump's ear on right. this particular issue. Sure, potentially, or, you know, was it somebody with big, there's a lot of money at stake here. And so I think there's a lot of questions about how exactly did Trump decide to tweet this? Um, you know, there, there's the question about whether or not this was a give, he's being played on North Korea negotiations, like this was a gesture of goodwill to China in advance of, of sort of the North Korea stuff. This is a huge win for China. And so if Trump is thinking that he's uh, some kind of savvy actor in the North Korea deal, I think it starts to show the ways in which he might be getting played six ways to Sunday without even realizing it. And that all sort of culminates in the national security issue and the reason why um, really heads are exploding, you know, at places like Fort Meade. And that's that, you know, ZTE manufactures parts for mobile phones. Um, They mostly don't sell them in the United States. They do a little bit, um, but that's not really the concern. ZTE uh, is one of the two Chinese companies that uh, that manufactures equipment that is critical to cellular networks and cellular networks that are used around the world, including outside the United States. So the implications of that are twofold. Um, one, China has been trying to uh, offer alternatives to United States uh, uh, technology equipment around the world for a long time, uh, partly as a way to reduce U.S. intelligence capabilities um, to the extent that the U.S. And expand their own. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, the, the goal, you know, cuts both ways, right? They're trying to make it harder for the United States, which currently has, you know, sort of a global monopoly on the equipment. So that allows them both to, um, uh, deploy, uh, defend the supply chain and also potentially exploit the supply chain to the extent that they do that. Um, it also offers China an opportunity um, uh, to use that equipment and in such a way as to uh, uh, collect intelligence, in, including intelligence that, that might be used against the United States. So this is this is really high stake stuff. This is big, big policy with with um, very, very broad implications. And so, uh, you know, it's it, it kind of is it's bringing together all the areas in which Trump is in a especially bad president on national security issues. And it's not clear whether or not it's, you know, something going on here that's there's a there's a corrupt purpose or he's getting played, um, you know, or, or does he just not understand what's happening? So Susan and I have been writing a book 
about uh, the Trump presidency and the norms, the historical norms that uh, he is uh, doing violence to. And the chapter that I'm currently working on involves the development of executive branch process. And this is a really interesting example of uh, the absence of executive branch process, right? Where so you have a whole lot of um, agencies that have spent a lot of time developing uh, information and policy towards ZTE. And then the president talks to Xi and she gives him a list of, hey, could you do this? Could you do this? And the president just tweets something with no reference to this very substantial policy process that has developed a uh, an approach to thinking about the problem that CTE presents, and I think it's a it's a quite apart from the merits of the issue on which I certainly agree with Susan, it is a remarkable picture in a single tweet of the relationship between President Trump and the idea of executive branch process, which is that, you know, things that other presidents would have would have bubbled up from presidential policy would have bubbled up from from the concerns of the Commerce Department and the NSA and, you know, all the different agencies that have equities in this. In his case, there, the presidency is just a personal thing. It's it's him, she, and a Twitter feed, and you know I I think I you know I don't know what to make of that except that there's you know there's something very profound in 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 there. Yeah, so I think we've seen him take a similar approach to other policy issues and announce things by tweet that he's been convinced of by some individual regardless of whatever internal deliberations may be taking place in the executive branch. But I think what's interesting about this case is that he said this. He said, you know, it's about Chinese jobs and we have to, I've instructed the Commerce Department to do it ASAP. Wilbur Ross then sort of jumps, you know, Trump says jump and he says how high and and tells everybody, okay, we're going to deal with this issue separately from all the other trade stuff we're talking about with China. And then Trump comes back and says, Oh, no, 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 no. This is part of this bigger trade talk. And is that him walking back because he looks bad? Or is that Ross just totally not understanding the president's intent because actually he has no clue? Or both. Or both, right? And so I think it adds to your notion that it's really, really revealing about something that is unique in in the way the Trump administration does business. But I guess my question about that is, what if it's not that the president's being played by Xi? and giving away too many concessions for the sake of a North Korea summit. Maybe what's going on here is that Trump actually thinks his re- his personal relationship with Xi is more important than North Korea. It's more important than the specifics of the trade deal, because what really matters is that he likes other people. They treat him well, and 
and uh, and they like him. And so, you know, all of these things are just tools to be manipulated for the sake of that broader end. So I think that's right. I think the, the way to put that, though, is that Donald Trump cares more about his personal relationship with Xi than about the national security interests of the United States of America. Or that he and, can't tell the difference between the two. Or, or he or doesn't care he, to. It doesn't matter to him. Or that he thinks through his personal relationship, he can best protect right. the national security interests But he really does believe l'etat c'est moi. So if my relationship with she is good, then whatever the U.S. needs, I can get. But then he's he's just a fool, right? So so sure, maybe that's his, <laughs> okay. right? But but if he really How is convinced really that, that China is our friend and, oh, you know, well, we're going to let them take over, you know, uh, all African cell phone networks. But, you know, they're going to play by the rules, guys. They'll be cool about this. Don't worry. Well, I don't know. I don't know how to respond to that on other than to say, well, then you're an idiot if you think that, because that's not what's going to happen. And so, you know, uh, whether or not, whatever the motivation is, I think this is another example of, of decisions and impulses that have long-term consequences. This is not the kind of stuff that the next president comes in and says, all right, I, let's roll all this stuff back. These are the tools of American power and the way we use these this sort of soft power around the world to preserve our dominance, presumably for the purpose of making the world safer for people and ideas, which is what we're all supposed to be doing here. You know, this is these are the kinds of the decisions. They they seem technical, some Chinese company that nobody's heard of and and it doesn't matter, that actually has really, really significant consequences. And and he does it again and again and 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 he doesn't appear to be paying any kind of a political price. You know, the, the we might have seen Wilbur Ross jump, but we didn't see Congress coming down like a ton of bricks. We didn't see, you know, the intel agencies uh, being really clear and public. And so, uh, you know, I think it's an open question. What is going to happen? And and we we shouldn't be in that position. We, we should understand what precisely the administration's policies is uh, with, with respect to these companies uh, and our allies should understand it and our adversaries should understand it. Um, and magical realism bot tweets, on New Year's Eve, a message is inscribed on an obsidian disc. It reads, be kind to secretaries. <laughs> and I just want to say Operation Obsidian Disc would have been way better yeah. than yeah. That's than, pretty cool, actually. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, speaking of discs. That was <laughs> I'm where, sorry. Where do you go with this one? <laughs> Things that like might be secret that you might put on a disc and remove from the CIA and get the WikiLeaks. Very good. Okay. Um, That's so 20th century. A yeah, disc. It's good. So many of our listeners don't know what a disc, a floppy disc is. <laughs> go see War Games, <laughs> which by the way, I rewatched last week. It's Aww. good. Totally holds up. Yeah. It really? Does. It really does. And by the so way, um, there is, that is one of the most consequential movies in U.S. history because Ronald Reagan watched it and scratched his head and said, could this happen? And uh, that had important implications in the history of cybersecurity. There it's true. It's a great story. You should read um, Fred Kaplan's book, Dark Territories, yeah, where he, uh, where he uh, recounts that he recounts story. This. Uh, so local reporter broke a story this week about... Yeah, uh, could you quit breaking so damn much news? I mean, <laughs> go to bed. Take a freaking vacation. <laughs> Read a Delbert and go to sleep. 
Um, that's an illusion. See if anybody gets that. Tweet us if you got that illusion. Anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, so the CIA, uh, last year, uh, a huge arsenal of CIA cyber weapons, if you like, uh, but really we're talking about things like exploit code, uh, ended up on WikiLeaks under the label that WikiLeaks gave it Vault 7, uh, which I... Which is a decent code name. It's yeah. decent code name. That's actually pretty good. Not as good as Obsidian does. Better than what the does. FBI pulled off. <laughs> pretty good. Uh, which uh, was as a reference to the uh, essentially the, the server or the place, if you like, from which the information was swiped in the first place. Um, so there is a suspect uh, in the case, a guy named Josh Adam Schulte, uh, who worked for this group at the CIA that actually built the tools. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting about his case uh, is that he is currently a uh, being held in the Manhattan Correctional Center, a jail in New York City, not on charges of stealing the information, but on child pornography charges. Uh, the feds raided his house last year, took a bunch of computers and equipment. I will note, did not then charge him with the child pornography case for another uh, several months, uh, during which time they were eyeing him as the suspect uh, in this leak investigation and in the, in the Vault 7 case. And they have also acknowledged in open court that, in fact, he is the target and the investigation is ongoing. Um, so, Susan, maybe I'll kick this to you, too, since uh, uh, this is kind of, again, in your wheelhouse. But is it, it struck me as is notable, but perhaps not all that unusual, that this person whose apartment is raided, his equipment is taken, clearly the feds believe he may have been the person who leaked this information. Some months go by, they can't make the case, and then he's charged with something else. Uh, and that, by the way, those charges in that potential trial are proceeding quite slowly for a number of reasons that we don't have time to get into. But that struck me as not all that unusual, possibly a tell that what they were trying to do is sort of keep him in the box and sweat him out uh, on these Vault 7 charges, and that the child pornography trial charges, while quite serious if he's in fact guilty of them, are in service of getting him to, to cooperate or plead on the espionage charge. Yeah, so look, there's there's a lot of strange things that is going on in this case. Um, uh, so, you know, look, um, in the course of, uh, of conducting an investigation and going over lots and lots of electronic uh, evidence, it is not unusual that investigators run across evidence of other crimes. Um, and, and actually, this is uh, one, uh, you know, not, not common, but also not uncommon way by which child pornography is discovered. Um, and so the notion that, the, that if the government found that, uh, that they would then prosecute it, uh, it's, that's not unusual. It's, it's also not wrong. We shouldn't think about that as like, oh, this is a pretext. You know, they, these are trumped up charges on, on child pornography, but really they want them on this other thing. It's entirely possible that the government really, really believes that this person uh, was involved in the dissemination of child pornography. And, and so has th- those are serious allegations that they want to uh, pr- proceed upon in their own regard. Now, there are some questions and we're kind of we're, we're dealing with, um, you know, some incomplete transcripts here. There are kind of questions about how strong the government's case is on the child pornography issues, including whether or not he had total control of the server and how many people had access to the server. So they're a long way from sort of making their case, but they don't have to make their case yet because they, they've just charged him and, and uh, whether or not that'll go to trial is later. Yeah, but there, there is a lot here that I, I do think looks like the government sort of trying to slow things down. One of the um, uh, you know strange things that happened is they actually let him out on bail and then uh, really pushed to revoke his bail condition or his the conditions of his release on some you know a little bit of a thin argument or you, you wouldn't you wouldn't ordinarily expect the government to be that aggressive. Yeah, they um, claimed that he was using computer 
computers is in, a, in his apartment in violation of his home confinement agreement when his roommate was the one using the computers. And they can prove that, they say. Right. And what this all gets at is whether or not the government has evidence that was uh, derived from some kind of source that they don't want to put in, in on the record yet. You know, there is SEPA. There are there is the ability to, to enter classified information in a way that's protected. But that's a that's a hard interagency fight. It's a hard fight between DOJ and the Intel community, uh, Intel agencies. And so I think the thing that people are suspicious of, although, you know, we, we this we don't know what's going on from the record is, look, the IC has some reason or evidence to believe that this guy is the source of the leak. They potentially have some reason to believe either that he is an ongoing threat, that he's going to uh, uh, you know, that he's going to try and flee the jurisdiction, something like that. And they are not, for whatever reason, they are not making that case directly to the court because they they don't want to uh, put classified information on the record. And instead, they're doing this other thing. And, and there are, I think these are, are reasonable questions to be asking. So this leak happened about a year ago, right? And they've had this guy in jail for a few months. I mean, that's pretty quick, isn't it, to have identified somebody as the likely source of a leak of this magnitude? It, it, it's interesting. He would have just left the agency by the time that the leaks happened. So it was not long, though, after the leaks occurred that they focus in on him. So, yeah, I mean, it, it does suggest that there was <clears throat> there was both, I think, circumstantial evidence insofar as he as he tells it was the only member of that group to have recently left the agency was known to be a disgruntled employee he didn't filed internal complaints about management at the group and he because they a, wouldn't let him keep child porn on his cia computer <laughs> that was not the stated reason <laughs> uh and he was actually planning a trip out of the country he says with his hmm. brother for spring break at, uh, to cancun so you put all those pieces together but i think to susan's point too you know that's circumstantial evidence, but the the speed of it also suggests, and we have not seen this evidence, that there could be some kind of forensic information uh, with this as well. One thing that is odd to me is that in reporting on the leaks when they happened a year ago, all of my reporting was showing that the suspicion was falling on a contractor or contractors, and not on a CIA employee, which is what Josh Schulte was. And there was one going theory that this was a disgruntled contractor who didn't get their contract renewed and leaked this information in retaliation. It's it, it struck the people who were my sources on that as strange. It's really like, oh, well, this isn't what we thought it was, actually. And one query on that, um, is it because the government is so uh, entrenched in how they view the insider threat as, as actually an outsider insider threat that they just assumed that that had to be what was going on uh, and missed whatever was going on right in front of them, right under their own nose? So in terms of like the deterrent uh, interest of the government here. Is it enough to have publicly fingered this guy and to have identified him so quickly after the event? Or do they really need to be able to put him on trial and get a conviction in order to have deterrent impact? Well, they didn't plan it for it to become public, but go ahead, yeah, Ben. So, for, so first of all, uh, if you're going to have somebody um, who you know, is basically Al Capone and you're going to get him for tax evasion. Child porn is a freaking great statute to have to hang over somebody. So as Quinta Jurassic and I discovered, uh, and a lot of listeners know, when, when we were doing our research on sextortion, these, these statutes are an astonishingly powerful club. Uh, the they have a, a ferocious mandatory minimum, 
the elements of them are relatively easy to prove. And if you if you are, you know, hosting or distributing or, or hoarding a whole lot of child porn uh, and the government gets a hold of you, they're going to be able to put you in jail for a lot of a lot of years. And um, and it is much easier to prove and you don't have to declassify anything than, you know, leaks of major CIA source code. So. Um, so if I'm a disgruntled CIA employee who's sympathetic to the ideology of WikiLeaks, don't I can do child porn. Yeah, I can right? just like say, well, I'm not going to collect move. child porn and then I'll be fine. Yeah, well, you're you're let let me flip it around. You are making the government's job against you a lot easier if in addition to whatever you are giving to WikiLeaks, you are also uh, hoarding child porn. And so in this case, I think, you know, this guy may have done the CIA an enormous favor if they can't produce this. But there's one thing that a child porn case can't get him, can't get um, unless, you know, unless they can cut a deal which is his cooperation. And the first thing that an agency wants in a situation like this, and this is true in all spying cases, in all, is a, is a rigorous damage assessment. And they want to know what happened, what, you know, what are the, what's the part of the story they don't know. And unless they can cut a deal with him, either on the child porn stuff or on the other stuff, they don't actually get to do that. And so I think you're, you know, the gov whether or not the government can, uh, assuming the government can prove the child porn case. And by the way, I've never seen a child porn case that's gotten dropped ever. Um, you know, so assuming they can, they can prove those, um, they have a lot of leverage here, but they want something from this guy, and it's something very important to them. One thing I is that does go to this point is um, is understanding the precise nature of this leak and and why it was so damaging, and and that it's part and parcel of some other things that we're seeing. Um, so un, you know the Snowden um the Snowden disclosures disclosed a lot about capabilities, and and it had um really tremendous astounding um uh, impacts on the ability of the United States to collect intelligence, but it was an indirect effect. Um, this the materials that were released as part of Vault 7, you know, which is similar to the Shadow Brokers leak, is the direct uh, exploit information, right? It's not just what the United States is doing. It is precisely how uh, how it's being done. And so once those tools are out, um, they are shattered. The cat is out of the bag. And they aren't just shattered for the U.S.'s capability. Um, they, they also now create a massive vulnerability because a lot of these were, were in systems that actually exist within the United States. And so this is um, a form of leak that is it really is especially damaging and pernicious. Um, just one last question briefly, and Ben, this to you. Uh, so Schulte's defense in this, uh, as we understand it from transcripts, and I know from my own reporting, is that this server on which the child pornography was found was one that he built with friends more than 10 years ago, and somewhere between, in his guess, 50 to 100 people had access to. So presuming that's true, is in a case like this, with the forensic tools that are available to investigators, can you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that in a situation where a server uh, that is open to many dozens of people, uh, all of whom could have uploaded and downloaded information on that, can you 
fairly easily or readily prove that it was this one individual that was doing it? Or do you need other evidence to bolster that? So I don't know the forensics well enough to answer that question. I do know that, uh, and I'd be interested in Quinta's sense of this, though she doesn't have a microphone in front of her face, but we looked at 80 sextortion cases, 80 plus, many of which had a child pornography element. There is not one of those cases that turns on a forensic difficulty in showing once the government has alleged that these uh, suspects had child pornography on their computers, that it was theirs or that they're responsible for it. And so, you know, now to the extent that this is a proxy for something else and therefore they may have gone with a weak case, this may be different from the cases that we've looked at, but we didn't look at a single case that even went to trial because people were so, uh, because the government's ability to prove these cases is so overwhelming. That's something that just pleaded guilty. People just plead out. Which has not happened for many, many months. Right. I mean, look, the other thing that's worth knowing is um, everyone who's ever been indicted in the history of the, the U.S. Code, it's it's been not their child pornography or child exploitation materials. So that's This is kind of the go-to thing. The government has submitted at least um, one evidence of a chat transcript in which uh, he and another individual explicitly reference uh, uh, this server being used for child pornography. Now, there's a way to possibly read that as it being part of sort of a dark joke. Um, But uh, considering the fact that uh, it actually ends up uh, materializing, uh, it has pretty dramatically undercut the, I had no idea that this stuff was going on case. Here's a pro tip. Don't even joke about child porn. Don't even joke. Don't joke. Not funny. Magical Realism Bot tweets, 50 doctoral students live together inside a golden swamp. Oh. Operation Golden, golden Swamp. Golden That's swamp. what they should have called it. It's hard to argue with Operation it's Golden Swamp. It's right in the face. What? <laughs> All right, before we move on to object lessons, uh, we had so much fun with this last week, which we did at the top of the show, but this week... The stories that we're not talking about because we only have room for three. Uh, so quickly, and we'll do rapid fire reactions. North Korea might cancel the summit with President Trump. Duh. Duh. Okay. <laughs> Iraq had parliamentary elections and Muqtada al Sadr won. Yay. Duh. <laughs> Go Muqtada. Well, can I just say, I love that when this guy first emerged, all of our newspapers were saying that he's like a schizophrenic, he's completely insane, and now he's going to be our favorite Iraqi politician. Wow. Times have changed. Uh, the DHS secretary didn't resign after a screaming match with President Trump. It wasn't really no, a screaming and, match. No, and Trump just, just while, we were, while we were sitting here, Trump said that she was doing a great, very hard job. Yeah. Yeah, That's all you need. A she'll tweet be fired from your at the boss. next boardroom yeah. meeting. Uh, the Trump administration wants to separate families who cross the border illegally and house the kids on military bases. You people suck so badly. And the Senate Judiciary Committee releases transcripts of their interview with participants in the infamous Trump Tower meeting about dirt on Hillary Clinton. I, I don't recall. I don't recall. I don't recall. I, what? I don't recall, I don't recall anything about that. I spent three hours of my precious life this morning reading only half of the Don Jr. transcript, in which he seems to not recall very much about anything. Don Jr. doesn't know nothing about, no, not hey, about nobody. Hey, it worked for Ronald Reagan. Buddy. Sure. Well, I, I mean, do in a manner recall. of speaking. 
All right, now let's move on to object lessons. Um, I will go first. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm reading a wonderful new book, which is not a long book, and I think that listeners of the podcast will really like it. It is Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics by Stephen Greenblatt. Ooh. Uh, Stephen Greenblatt, who's written a terrific history before of Shakespeare called Will in the World. Others may know him as the author of The Swerve. Great book. Which really is one of the great nonfiction books of recent memory. It's fantastic. Um, but Greenblatt, Greenblatt clearly um, provoked not just by his love uh, – and authority when it comes to Shakespeare, but by the present moment that we're in, to look at all of the Shakespeare plays and look to them for uh, Shakespeare's meditation on the nature of tyrants and how they come to power and how they are treated. And what makes it an especially interesting and fun read is that in Shakespeare's time, and I actually did not know this, but uh, it was illegal, it was punishable by death to call the king or the queen or the sovereign a tyrant. And you could not stage plays uh, about the the present moment, you couldn't do a play about Queen Elizabeth. So Greenblatt's idea here is that Shakespeare has to go back and reach into distant history and, and sometimes even ancient history to comment on the present moment. And there was this great fear and anxiety in England at the time that Queen Elizabeth, who was nearing the end of her life and had no heirs, uh, would this give way to tyranny in England? And so it's interesting to see how Greenblatt kind of takes you back through the text. And says, how can we read this, not just for what was going on in England at the time, but then the lessons about tyrants. And um, he does not shy away from drawing allusions to the present moment, which makes it especially delicious. And he's such a great writer and so entertaining. So check it out. There are countries now where you cannot call the monarch a tyrant. In fact, in Morocco, a magazine published a poll demonstrating how incredibly popular the king was. And they were not allowed to do that. So Wow. All right, so check it out, Stephen Greenblatt. He's back. I have an object lesson as well um, in our uh, our noble tradition of log rolling on rational security. Um, uh, I have uh, launched a new project here at the Brookings Institution. Um, it is Sourceless. Uh, it is a database of women in technology policy um, and, uh, and a resource for journalists and event planners and other people who want to talk to somebody who's not a dude. Um, we promise that they actually are out there and we have made them incredibly easy for you to find. Um, so if you know women who are uh, experts in technology policy, Policy. We're defining that very, very broadly. Um, please send them the link to sign up. If you are an event planner or a journalist and you want to talk to some new and more diverse sources, um, use it. It is sourcelist.org. Um, and we are uh, pretty happy to see it out in the world at long last. So stop complaining and start a revolution. And that's exactly. what Susan did. Don't tell me you can't find women that's anymore. Right. And journalists, you've been warned, check it out. Go right. expand your horizons. There you go. All right, so I uh, this is not log rolling, but this is a bit of a celebration. Our fantastic producer, Jen Patia Howell, the best ever, the best producer we've ever had. She cleans this up in so the nice history of rational security. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, but we we love Jen, and we are thrilled uh, to uh, send our congratulations out to Jen as she takes uh, on a new role as co-executive director of a new organization called Virginia Civics. Uh, Virginia Civics is um, the sponsor of a wonderful civic education program that's been around in the state of Virginia for a number of years now called We the People, the Citizen and the Constitution Program. So as we sit here on this show and frequently decry 
the lamentable state of civic education in the U.S., how unprepared our citizens are to assess what their president is doing, uh, how the rule of law fits in, what's the role of the separate branches of government. Uh, here is a big shout out to Virginia Civics and to Jen and her colleagues for um, make for giving a, a permanent institutional home to this really important project. And congratulations. Go, Jen. So I met Jen a, a number of years ago now when uh, Brookings and Montpelier, which is the home of James, the, the historic home of James Madison, where Jen used to work and used to host, used to be the, the home of this program, uh, Brookings and Montpelier got together to do some some uh, some uh, programming together, which we did for five years, and that's actually how I first met Jen. And uh, what was Spaghetti on the Wall Productions and you know Rational Security's original producer kind of grew out of uh, originally out of that relationship, and so it's really cool that Jen is retaining the civic education uh, portfolio in this in this new form. And she's still going to keep us in line every week. Yeah, at least we hope so. <laughs> we hope. Because we need it. We need it bad, Jen. Please and, don't get too busy, And I don't Jen. have an object lesson, but Magical Realism Bot tweets, a fellowship of zombies are going on a quest. Their aim is to do battle with a gigantic swarm of bees. I think Operation Zombie Fellowship, particularly for... Shane's husband Joe. Oh yeah, is oh, big time. is really a good name. That would for, be his fave. It yeah. would be his fave. <laughs> he would be a member of a zombie fellowship if he could, or at least <laughs> would paint them. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page in some fellowship of zombies on the internet someplace. Yeah, we're eventually going to move it from the spaghetti on the wall site, which <laughs> Dead is page. Dead, but. Zombie website out there. <laughs> Fellowship of zombie websites. You can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. <clears throat> and we love reading them. Thank you very much. Your comments are both inspiring and constructive. Except when they're not. Not they usually are. We kidding. love you all and all listeners. your comments. Now they're great. They're really great. We appreciate it. The show is produced and edited, of course, by Jen Patia Howell, our audio engineer this week. Thank you, Quinta Jurassic, stepping back into the booth, such that it is. It's not really a booth, but, you know, nothing's what it seems in the Jungle Studio. Music performed this week by Donald Trump, and that's what she said. What? <laughs> 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 that was like, damn, this is a tough room. <laughs> Haven't that? we used that joke before? That's what yes, she said. But what's what is it in reference? That's such to? a middle school joke. The CTE thing. Oh, oh that's what she oh, said. I see what you did. See, you, you know, did if you like have it. to explain it, then it doesn't work. If you had <laughs> it spelled sorry. out here, I mean maybe if I put like a yeah. little more she or something like yeah. that, I don't know, on it, like a little spin on it. Then we would have gotten it. Yeah. <clears throat> you guys loved it, even though you didn't know you did. It's like a joke grenade. Uh, if there were a band that Sophia Yan were fronting, it might be called That's What She Said. She'd By the way, everyone should watch Sophia Yan's Facebook video, uh, which she did entirely from her iPhone 
about the uh, Big Island uh, lava flows and the social impacts on people in the Big Island where, where Sophia is now working as, a, as an AP reporter. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty cool video, and uh, you should all check it out. Check it. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Obsidian Disc forever. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.